Welcome to another episode of Theology Doesn't Suck, where we apparently have really enthusiastic intros and where hopefully theology doesn't suck. With you today, as always, is myself, Josh Patterson, and my co-host, Marty Frederick. What it do, Marty? Welcome to another episode of Theology Doesn't Suck. (laughs) See, you can do intros, bro. (laughs) Yeah, but my intros would be like that every time, and then people would be like, dude, like, you're way too excited about something that's not very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I dig it. All right, dude. Well, so today we're doing something a little bit different. We're recording uh, an intro to an episode post-recording of the episode itself. Ah, uh, Because when we recorded this interview, you were out being famous and touring the world with your band. So I'll, I'll replace famous with being the drummer in an almost famous group of musicians along the Eastern or the Western Michigan coast. And I played four shows. <laughs> That's almost like touring one, the world. One Come on. was one, one of the shows was in front of 3000 people. So there is That's pretty that. cool. But yeah, famous. None of those people remember who I am in any way, shape, or form. Partly because we played at the very end of a very long day of of music, uh, and and also because uh, I'm the drummer uh, and I'm I'm sitting and like and it, because it was everyone was drunk also probably at that point. So. Oh, nice. So, were you? Have you seen the movie Step Brothers? Yes. So, were you just playing boats and hoes when you no, were? No, but I also <laughs> made sure no one else came near my drum set. So. Oh, perfect. Especially That's dudes. <laughs> so. Yeah, we don't want yeah. any uh, any body parts on the <laughs> drum set. Unless they're arms and they belong to me. Unless they're, <laughs> yeah, or arms holding drumsticks. All right, we'll move on so we don't have that to get into... wild conversation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dude. Well, while you were gone, uh, we I had a conversation, a pretty cool conversation with a guy named Chris Date uh, from Rethinking Hell. And we did a conversation where we talked about... Uh, what he called the hell triangle, uh, the three perspectives that fall within the realm of orthodoxy on this idea Mm. of hell. So we talked about eternal conscious torment. We talked about annihilationism, and we talked about Christian universalism. And it was pretty cool. And I sent over uh, that audio to you. Did you have a chance to to check no, it I didn't out? Listen, no, I'm kidding. Of course I did. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I listened. Well, what'd you I think, man? And I think as I was listening through it, the big thing that caught me—I mean, this is gonna this is gonna sound tongue in cheek. I don't mean it to be that way. Was that Chris Date could forget more things about this topic than I'll ever know. Um, I mean, like he just—he has so much knowledge about the topic, and what it, what it actually really led me to is. So I texted this to you earlier, Josh. Um, you know, when I think about like, and I use the word traditional. I, I don't mean to use that word, and you guys will hear what I mean uh, as you hear this episode today. But um, like, my view of hell was very much the. Again, I'm going to use this word: the traditional evangelical. Um, you're going to go there if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And then you ask, like, if if someone were to say, well, what is hell? Um, The worst definition I ever heard was, like, you know, being in fire and brimstone and, like, you know, suffering for eternity. You're like, you see, like, a a comic that has, like, a depiction of hell and it's, like, flames all around or whatever. And, like, Mm, like, or mm -hmm. you see, like, you know, 
more like later like later paintings of like artists you know like like famous artists in history doing depictions of hell where it's like you know there are demons constantly around tormenting these people who are there to suffer for all of eternity um and uh so like that was one of the one of the worst definitions i'd ever heard the best definition i've ever heard of hell um was really just uh, just eternal separation from god uh, just being separated mm-hmm. from God mm-hmm. and his love. Uh, and like, so, so for yeah. me, like listening to the episode, like it was one of those things where like, I would want to go back and listen to it like four or five more times and then go read all the books that he suggested to read and then go read the articles <laughs> sure. and listen to the podcasts and listen to his podcast and like want to get a better understanding and grasp because like, I, I think that there are Christians out there and I would, I would venture to guess it's more than 90% of them that feel like they don't have to worry about hell at all because they've been saved. And so for them, it's like, okay, whatever that means, you know, like (laughs) hell, it's not, I mean like, yeah, it would be a problem if I wasn't saved, but I am saved. So I shouldn't be worried about it. Fully forgetting about like their, their sister that isn't saved or their best friend that isn't saved or their, their parents that aren't saved uh, and know Jesus um, but then even beyond that, like, they're afraid of this thing that they don't know, that they don't understand, mm-hmm. that if they really actually asked themselves, they would say, oh, actually, I, I'm not sure I actually agree with anything that I've been taught about this place or this thing, because if I've been taught anything, which is even less likely, um, the things that I've been taught probably fall into that, you know, I'm going to work, we're going to make you so afraid of this thought process that you're not even right. going to want to engage what it means at all. And so, so, so I guess for me, like that was my, that was my like history going into like this idea, this episode. When you mentioned that we were going yeah. to have him on, I remember thinking to myself like, okay, like, is this going to be some sort of like, you know, crazy, wild, progressive, you know, like hell doesn't exist. You know, there's no, <laughs> there is no such thing as, you know, like separation from God, essentially like some sort of weird progressive movement out there. And uh, I mean, I think everyone listening will, first of all, that's not his position. So uh, I hope I'm not giving away too much. He makes that very (laughs) clear too. He He lays out who he is. He's a hardcore, like super conservative reformed, biblical inerrantist. So I guess (laughs) all I'm saying is, is that like for me, so much of the episode was so good um, but it just it it made me interested to like get out there and say like okay like I need to have a really great understanding of hell and and the reason isn't for myself like 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 I said like this is not for me to be sure that I say oh well I better know about the place that I know I'm not going but like what right, it is is right. if I have a greater understanding of hell if I have a greater understanding of what it means um, for someone to be separated from God's love for all of eternity, then I have a better understanding of why I don't want the people that I know and love to have to experience that uh, and why I yeah, want absolutely. them to experience the salvation that Jesus brings, why I want them to like essentially be able to say, I know I'm not going there, you know? And so and yeah. now that I know I'm not going there now, here's why, because the last thing I'll say about this, Josh is like, I've talked to people about Jesus before. I've, I've talked mm-hmm. to them. I've, I've shared the gospel. I've talked to them about it. And like, if the topic of hell comes up to many of them, 
the old school fire and brimstone thing that seems so pie in the sky almost isn't that's not enough reason for them to be like, oh, well, then I better get my act together and, and become a Christian. But like, yeah. it doesn't it's not it's what used to be scary isn't scary anymore. What was scary yeah. to someone in the in the dark ages or someone that went through the bubonic plague, you know, in those times like that might have been scary for them. But this eternal yep. torment thing, for some reason, just isn't scary. It doesn't hit home anymore for people. And so that's not enough of an yeah. answer. So I feel like we need to be able to articulate to someone we're talking to, hey, listen, like, it's not just this, like, you know, some guy with horns on his head, like, chasing you around, like, in, the, <laughs> in like, you know, like, journey to the center of the earth, like, where you're experiencing, like, the earth's core, you know, like, I mean, like, literally, there are probably people that believe hell is, like, in this, like, middle of the earth kind of thing. Yes, I was freaking taught that in confirmation class at the Methodist church. They showed us a video of these miners drilling into the center of the earth and they dropped a microphone down there. And it was just like you heard like deep like ha 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 and like ah! people screaming. <laughs> they sh- I promise you they showed that shit to us. I promise you. Well, so that's what it, and it scared me so that's bad. What I'm saying like it scares a child and it's not even true. And so then a child walks around. And so like we talked about before, like their faith is not their own. Their faith is like, oh, well, I better not do this. Be- like if I better become a G- I better become a Jesus following Christian or else. And instead yeah. of this, like, I better become a Jesus following Christian because of Jesus, not or else I'm going to have right. to deal with this other thing. It's sort of like, would you rather mm. clean your room or get a cookie? Well, I, I, I want to get a cookie. I don't want to have to clean my room, but you know, like in many ways, like for a child, if you say like, if you don't clean your room, you're going to be punished works less than saying, if you clean your room and you do a good job, there's going to be a reward at the end of it. (laughs) And I realize (laughs) I'm not trying to connect Jesus to like being rewarded. Like it's not the same, but I, I guess what I'm saying is, are you pro- are you are you propagating works righteousness that and Marty? prosperity gospel? If it's if that's all right, um, <laughs> but yeah, I guess for me, what I'm saying is, is that we need to we need to better understand, I think what hell is, and I think I, I think mm. just what we've been taught by people who probably didn't understand yeah. what hell is, um, really, yeah. just it, it's it's so important and valuable. So, yeah, no, I think you're right, man. That's a really good point. Actually, I have a few points real quick that I want to lay out and then um, like we'll shut up so we can listen to Chris talk because like you said, uh, the guy's a genius. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting you were saying that though because like something that has dawned on me is when we speak on the nature of hell, we're also speaking on the nature of God. Like what kind of God are we revealing behind our understanding of hell? I think that's an important mm-hmm. question to ask. And we also are asking a question of like, what is the nature of the human soul? You know, like, what is the human soul? What is it designed to Mm do? And so Chris, Chris lays out these three perspectives, the traditional view, the annihilationist view and the Christian universalist view. And you, you hit on this, but, um, I would often like, you know, I would object to calling, uh, eternal conscious torment, the traditional view. Um, maybe like you said, I would be comfortable perhaps saying the traditional evangelical view of hell. Um, But the reason I'm hesitant is because all three of these positions that Chris lays out for us can be found within the Christian tradition. And, you know, with um, 
In fact, within like uh, by 200 AD, all three of these positions were like propagated ideas. And then, as Chris points out, if we're we're honest, um, a lot of like all three of these are prevalent themes within Scripture. Um, all three of these views uh, seem to be promoted, and in my opinion. Um, and I think actually Chris would disagree with me, but in my opinion, it's hard to harmonize all of them without marginalizing some other texts. And so I think we see that the early church got this and understood this uh, because when they kind of put the creed together that summarizes our eschatology, right? The, what we believe is going to happen in end times, whatever. Um, and they, they wrote the Nicene Creed. Um, all three of these views were kept in mind, and they wrote it in such a way that um, they could all be kind of uh, fit in there. Because ba- So basically, what I'm saying is the Nicene Creed lays out four points about our eschatology. That Jesus will come again in glory, that he will judge the living and the dead, which I guess could be retributive or restorative, uh, the resurrection of the dead, and also the life of the age to come. And so amen. there's no dogma. <laughs> so I said What's amen up? because you were... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you said it yeah. almost like a creed yeah, so, or something like that. Yeah, it does sound like a creed. Maybe the Nicene Creed, if I wasn't clear. Yeah. So, but what's crazy in in my mind is there's no dogma in the creed about afterlife or hell. And so what they're what they were doing is saying that um, you can't be called a heretic as long as you're inside these bounds, right? And so they created this creed to be inclusive of all three of the perspectives. And in fact, the final editor of the Nicene Creed uh, was Gregory of Nyssa, and he was a full-blown universalist. And then uh, for our more astute listeners, they will be quick to point out that a later council did, um, you know, in fact, condemn a version of universalism, but I would argue with them and say, yes, it was a version, but they didn't condemn it because it was universalism. They condemned it because it implied the preexistence of souls before birth, which is like a super Mormon thing mm. to say. <laughs> and so the last thing that I'll leave people with, because, uh, you know, with him, like you said, Marty, and I agree with you, the, the traditional or the most prevalent evangelical position is eternal conscious torment. It's what we're taught. Some people might ask why. And I think uh, the answer is because of a dude called Augustine, who we all have heard of. And Augustine brings us like a super brutal understanding of eternal conscious torment where God, he believed and taught that God supernaturally regenerates our skin and nerve endings so that we'll be constantly in perpetual torment. And then later a dude called John Calvin <laughs> comes along and says, wait a minute, uh, I'm going to reject that idea. I still believe in eternal conscious torment but it is a torment that is spiritual in nature. Uh, God doesn't regenerate our bodies constantly so we can be tormented. So that, I think, is why eternal conscious torment is so popular. But um, that was just my yeah. two cents, just to kind of lay the, the land for our listeners. And uh, maybe I should shut up so they can get into the episode. What do you think? Here's Chris Date. <laughs> yeah, we talk about being really, like, over the top. So. I love it. All right, guys. Enjoy Chris, guys. <laughs> So, guys, uh, today, Marty is actually not with us. He is out uh, touring with his band, which is pretty cool. Uh, we did an Instagram post about that. If you haven't seen that, go over to our Instagram, at Theology Doesn't Suck, and check it out, and then give uh, his band a follow. Uh, but that's okay. Although we're going to miss Marty, we have a, a really exciting guest. 
a gentleman by the name of Chris Date. And so, Chris, how's it going, man? Really good. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your day to, to come and talk with us, uh, well, me <laughs> in this case. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, joking with you earlier, and, you know, you're stuck with me. Marty's much cooler than I am, um, you know, but I can't tell him that because then, you know, it inflates his ego and things like that. So sure, I'll leave that with you and, and you know, we won't tell Marty. Well, I am surely far less cool than both of you, so uh, <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> right on. Awesome. Well, um, so we have a question that we ask everybody that comes on the show, uh, you know, the right off the bat, and it's super important, uh, and we need an answer even if you feel like you don't have one. Are you ready for this? About as ready as I imagine I can be. <laughs> All right. What is your favorite hockey team? <laughs> Uh, it has been a long time since I followed, uh, hockey. I was a big NHL fan in high school when I myself played hockey, uh, and I was a goaltender. And so naturally my favorite teams were those whose goaltenders I was, uh, you know, a big fan of. And the one that I was a biggest fan of was Martin Brodeur. Uh, uh so you can imagine that my favorite team was the, was the devils, the New Jersey devils. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Uh, Marty Brodeur is a, a solid choice and I absolutely respect that. I think you're, so you're officially our first ice hockey goaltender ever on Theology Doesn't Suck. So that's that's an awesome honors. Congratulations. Well, do I get some sort of a medal or a, or a banner or something? I yeah, expect we'll something to, in the mail. Absolutely. We'll have to figure something out. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. That's awesome. Well, sweet. Yeah, I know one of my favorite goaltenders, uh, and this is going to show because I'm a Capitals fan, uh, is Olaf Kolzig. Uh, hmm. Oli the goalie, as he was affectionately known as. Uh, you know, the Capitals often needed a good goalie because for the majority of their existence, they have not been very good, to say the mm. least. <laughs> well, there's a lot of great goaltenders to pick from, at least from the era in which I followed hockey. I mean, I was big fans of a big fan of Brodeur, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Potvin. Yeah. Um, uh, who, who was the guy? Uh, Waugh? Patrick yeah, Waugh? Patrick Waugh. Absolutely. All of, yeah, there were a ton of really good goalies back then. I don't know. if Are there, are there still good goaltenders today? There are. There are. Actually, I would argue that the Capitals still have one of the best goalies, <laughs> Braden Holtby. Uh, but there's guys like Marc-Andre Fleury. Um, oh, goodness gracious. Uh, in Tampa Bay, my brain is failing me. Um, <laughs> he's a young kid, too, younger than me, which is crazy. Uh, Vasilevsky, uh, mm. he's really good. Sergei Bobrovsky. Uh, there's some good people out there still playing goalie. And goalies are a special breed. I have a lot of credit for goalies. So. You know, it's it's funny you say that. A lot of people have this misapprehension that the goaltenders are, you know, they're, they're the players who can't skate, so you go and you shove them in goal. But the reality <laughs> is they have to be better skaters than everybody else uh, and better conditioned. You know, we're constantly going up and down, up and down, moving side to side really quickly. So I, I appreciate the, the, you saying that. And I'm sorry I can't say more about uh, contemporary hockey, but I will say uh, I'm in the Pacific Northwest in Washington State, and my understanding is that it's uh, Seattle's own hockey team is just like right around the corner like any day now we're gonna get a new team so pretty soon i'll be able to get back into the uh swing of things there you go that's awesome yeah that'll be good yeah seattle has a team coming and uh that'll be pretty cool another expansion draft and all that kind of stuff cool well so today if you know for our listeners if they didn't know i didn't ask you to come and chat uh with myself about hockey (laughs) um i actually i think (laughs) we have something that uh is way more fun uh, you know, has, has been very helpful to me. Uh, before we jump into our topic, can you just kind of tell us like uh, who you are, what you do, uh, those kind of things, just help us get to know you a little bit better. 
Sure. So as I said, I live in the Pacific Northwest in Washington State. I'm married and I'll have been married 20 years this coming May. Um, my wife and I, oh, and we have four children. My oldest is 18. My youngest is five. They're all boys and they're kind of spread out equally between those two ages. Um, uh, my wife and I married when we were both atheists. I had been an atheist pretty much my whole life. Uh, shortly after we got married, I became a Christian. There's not a huge story there. But for the next few years, um, things were a bit difficult. I was a completely different person, as you can imagine. And um, that caused some uh, strife between my wife and me. But eventually the Lord uh, gripped her as well, and she became saved. And um, since then, so right around that time that my wife and I got married, I also began a career in software engineering. And that remains the career that I am in right now, although very soon after becoming a Christian, I developed a passion for biblical exegesis, theology, and uh, apologetics. And so for a long time, I wanted to pursue a higher education in, in Christian academia. And uh, back in 2014, I began that higher education, um, earning a Bachelor of Science in Religion from Liberty University in 2017. And now I'm almost done with a Master of Arts in Theology at Fuller Seminary. Uh, after which I hope to go on to do a PhD in Old Testament. Um, the one thing I want to mention, though, uh, and I think this is still kind of in the vein of the question that you just asked me, um, Fuller is not—I I did not choose Fuller because I share their ethos um, or, or their uh, their worldview. Uh, Fuller has a reputation, particularly among uh, fellow cons my fellow conservatives, of being a very liberal school. When That's not really true. Um, the reality is, is that the faculty at Fuller and the student body are both very diverse. And I have encountered, especially in Old Testament studies, very liberal professors, uh, or, or what I would characterize as liberal. They probably would dispute that. Uh, but in New Testament studies and in theology, I've, I've encountered very conservative Christians. In fact, um, I remember one of my teachers said there's really good evidence for believing that Paul wrote the pastoral epistles. And for people familiar with the debate about Pauline authorship, they'll know that the pastoral epistles are typically said to be the ones most obviously uh, uh, not written by Paul. So anyway, I chose Fuller because I uh, didn't want to go to school in an echo chamber. I wanted to be stretched and challenged. And so even though I'm very conservative, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. I believe in—I'm um, uh, even a young earth creationist. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm conservative on virtually every issue. Uh, the one that we're going to be talking about today is the one where I think somebody could argue that I'm not, but I would push back on that. Um, but but I didn't want to go to school where I was just going to be told everything I already believe. So I chose Fuller and um, uh, hope that that serves. I hope that that equips me well to be able to engage with people that perhaps students of conservative schools might not, because they just aren't as exposed to liberal views as I have been. Um, so anyway, uh, I'm also reformed. Uh, I'm a five point Calvinist. I believe in penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, I, um, gosh, what else? I'm a, I'm a so-called partial preterist. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I, I'm not a charismatic. I believe tongues are a human language. I mean, I could go. I could go on and on and on. Sure, so sure, sure. I'll let you cut me off at this point. <laughs> no, I think I think it's very admirable uh, what you were talking about with with Fuller. Um, I mean, here, even though if if you were to go back and look through, you know, the the history of guests we've had on the show, um, you would see that I guess a lot of them, most of them, uh, would, might be characterized as progressive or or more liberal, depending on who you're talking to. But really, with Theology Doesn't Suck, our, our overall purpose, our goal, we wanted to have conversation with, with multiple perspectives, multiple voices, 
Uh, and, and like I said, that word conversation, I think, is huge, not necessarily, you know, just debate. I think there's a lot of debate out there, which is good. Uh, debate definitely has its place. But I just think conversation, being able to hear other perspectives and then, you know, helping other people to think through different perspectives, because then even if you you don't agree with the, the, the other perspective, at least it strengthens your faith, because now you can articulate a different perspective, but then also still hold to yours and know, OK, you know, I'm you know now stronger in my faith, if, if that makes sense. So I think that's yeah. really cool. You know, your your ambition of, of going to Fuller and um, Fuller, you know, seems like a cool school. I've definitely looked into going there. Uh, right now, I'm looking also at Northern um, mm. as well. So I don't know. Um, that's another conversation. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so thank you so much again for, for talking with us today and, and giving us some of your background. Um, just in case, oh, I don't think I've said it yet. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, what can be a fun topic or also probably not a fun topic. Uh, and that's the topic of hell. Mm. And so you've been involved uh, with, uh, I don't know, is the right, is organization the right word? Rethinking hell, would you call it an organization, a ministry? What kind of language would you say? I mean, both of those are are accurate. Uh, We're also a a 501c3 um, not-for-profit, and uh, and we also consider ourselves part of a a movement um, of people who hold to the view of hell that we advocate for. So any one of those uh, terms is, is applicable. Okay, awesome. So yeah, so you've been a part of that uh, for a, a couple years now. Is, is that right? Uh, I want to say, and my memory's fuzzy. I'll, sure. I'll look it up in a moment. But I want to say that I joined Rethinking Hell back in 2012, which awesome. is right around the same time it began. So it's awesome. been a number of years now. Yeah, that's well, that's awesome. It's fantastic. It's uh, Rethinking Hell has been super helpful resource for me. I've used it uh, with students uh, multiple times, and we'll we'll start to kind of jump into to some of the work that you do there, but. It, uh, kind of to, to help frame this conversation, I guess, I had a listener, actually one of our patrons uh, named Justin, ask a really good question that I thought, you know, we might be able to throw out there, start with that, and then um, move on from there. Does that sound good to you? Sounds great. Sweet. So his question is this. He says, how does our view of hell change or shape our view or understanding of God? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, a lot of uh, critics of the view of hell that I promote um, would probably expect me to say that when one changes, when one rejects the traditional view of hell as eternal torment and embraces one of its alternatives, uh, one uh, becomes a, uh, better able to appreciate and, and resonate with with the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of God and things like that. Um, there are a lot of people on my side of this debate that that think the traditional view of hell paints God out to be some sort of vicious uh, monster tormenting people forever. I actually don't share any of those intuitions. I think that the um, the pretty typical modern uh, view of eternal torment, uh, the one that I had when I was still a believer in eternal torment, isn't really sort of the literal fire and brimstone that that uh, traditionalists of the past, at least some of them, have advocated for. It's more of like an eternal prison sentence isolated from God and from his people. And um, that actually doesn't strike me as problematic in terms of justice or morality or anything like that. So my view of hell and the, or of God and, and the view of uh, that a lot of other of my fellow uh, other people that share my view of hell, their view of God also has not changed in that respect, having abandoned the tradition. What has changed is, uh, at least in my case, is I've, I've become much more 
uh, aware of how seriously God takes sin, mm. um, which sounds a little counterintuitive to critics of my view because they think that uh, people who hold my view just can't stomach the traditional view. They think it's too harsh and they want to believe in sort of a kinder, gentler God. But I actually think that that traditional view that I described, where hell is sort of an eternal prison sentence isolated from God and from his people, um, th- that a person consigned to that fate still has life. They're still alive. They've been resurrected. Their bodies have been made immortal. They have life and they can see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. And and, and I prize life. And I think that life is inherently a good, valuable thing, which is why, by the way, I'm opposed to euthanasia and to abortion. So, so I have come to realize how seriously God takes sin because he takes it so seriously that he will uh, destroy eventually uh, people that refuse to stop committing it and, and repent and, and turn to his son in faith. Um, the, in the traditional view, God grants immortality, um, you know, everlasting life to the resurrected wicked, thereby ensuring uh, guaranteeing that sin keeps going on and on and on for eternity. Whereas in my view, God takes sin so seriously, he act, He totally obliterates it and gets rid of all traces of it from his cosmos. So in that, that's how my personal view of God has changed by embracing this view. It's, it's made me realize just how seriously God takes sin. Okay, awesome. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a good answer. And uh, one thing that I was thinking too is maybe um, some people would might want to flip this question and say, perhaps our view of God shapes our understanding of hell. Um, you know, I know for a lot of people, maybe perhaps uh, somebody who would be, um, you know, more along the lines of uh, some kind of universalism, uh, perhaps they would point to their view and understanding of God, um, you know, to kind of lead them to that, that, that idea of universalism. Yeah, I think that's true of some people for sure. Uh, and, and it's definitely true of some people on my side uh, of the debate. Um, I, the, the thing that I'm concerned about with people whose view of hell is driven primarily by their view of God is that for a lot of people who claim that, um, it seems as though their view of God is um, – is limited to only is based on only parts of scripture and apparently motivates them to be willing to do all sorts of gymnastics to explain other parts of scripture. Okay. That's not, I don't think that's a legitimate approach. That's okay. one reason I'm not a universalist. Sure. Uh, so what I would want to say is that I think it's great to, I mean, look, our view of God based on the scriptures and our view of all sorts of other things based on the scriptures have got to cohere if, if like me, and not everybody agrees with this, but if like me, somebody believes that the scriptures are not only human, but also divine in origin, even, even without put, even without a super high view of scripture where it's inerrant, like I view it, even just viewing it as divine in origin means we ought to take it all seriously and not not just parts of it. And so I just want to I just want to encourage people like the ones you've just described to make sure that as they let their view of God shape their interpretation of scripture, it's not allowing them to overrule scripture and read things into it that aren't really there. Awesome. Yeah, well thank you so much for that. Um, and so I guess since you know we've started to touch on it, uh, real quick, just for our listeners, a helpful thing that might aid you in this conversation is uh, Rethinking Hell has a, has a really super helpful resource uh, called the Hell Triangle. And actually, I have it right here on my, my phone in front of me. But if you're not driving or doing something <laughs> else dangerous, <laughs> I would recommend going to their website and, and pulling this up so you have it in front of you. I think it could be very helpful during the conversation. I know I've I've personally downloaded this, printed it out, given it to students. 
uh, before, uh, which is so it's an, an awesome resource. But on that thing, uh, on the hell triangle, uh, there's three uh, Christian views of final punishment uh, that are laid out, and they are traditionalism, universalism, and conditionalism. And so mm. I thought maybe what we could do is is hit each one of those. You know, maybe uh, motivate the position a little bit. Because uh, I've I've heard you do that before. I know you're you're very good at that. And then maybe point out some of the weaknesses, and then uh, we'll move to the next one. So I figured we could start with traditionalism, then jump to universalism, and then end uh, with your personal favorite and uh, your conviction: conditionalism. Sure. So let's start with traditionalism then. And um, this is not called traditionalism because people who believe it are simply, you know, blindly obeying tradition. It's called traditionalism because at least since about the time of Augustine in the fifth century, um, this has been the view that is most dominated Christian thought. Uh, it's it's also it also goes by eternal torment um, or eternal conscious t- torment or eternal conscious punishment. Uh, and the idea here is. Uh, is that punishment of unbelievers in hell goes on forever consciously. Maybe a more accurate or more precise way to put it would be that the punishing goes on for eternity. But it's more than that. And this is something that I, I, I try to stress a lot because sometimes it gets overlooked. It's not merely that people are conscious of, of their being punished for all eternity. It's that they are, as I said earlier, resurrected, embodied, immortal living beings. Um, f- nowadays, it is somewhat fashionable for pe- people who believe in this view to say that, um, to, to just simply say the resurrected lost exist in hell forever. But that's not how the tradition has painted this picture as going as far back to the second century with people like Tatian and Tertullian and maybe even Athenagoras. Uh, way back then and all the way to today, traditionalists have said that the resurrected unbelievers, their bodies will be transformed and made immortal, incorruptible, so that they can literally live forever in hell. So that's that's the important thing here. There are two parts of this view. One, eternal torment. Two, resurrected, immortalized people who live forever in that torment. Now, there are variations of this, and we sort of call some of these out in that diagram. Um, For example, whereas a lot of traditional people thought that this was literal flames or at least some sort of literal torment, um, nowadays a lot of people opt for something more like separationism, that unsaved sinners are uh, sort of choose to be separated forever from God by by their actions, by their sins, and by their refusal to repent. There's also a very, what seems to be a small number of traditionalists who, uh, would would self-identify as reconciliationists, meaning that they believe they, they want to take very seriously biblical texts that say that God will reconcile all things. Um, and they will say that the wicked in hell are thus reconciled, but not savingly. They they cease to sin. Um, they 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 understand and accept the punishment that they are uh, that they are receiving, and they they admit they deserve it. Um, but they nevertheless are denied the blessings of God's presence forever. And then finally, there's sort of a weird hybrid view um, promoted by the likes of N.T. Wright mm-hmm. called uh, we call it dehumanization, which is the idea that eventually human beings in hell. Um, they, they become incre- decreasingly human until the point where they lose the imago dei, the image of God, altogether, uh, thereby ceasing to be truly human. Um, uh, and nevertheless, they keep on going, uh, being tormented for eternity. So that's so that's 
those are sort of the varieties of views in this traditionalist camp. Um, now, you, you asked what motivates it, and I think that ultimately what motivates it is two things. One, um, a, uh, a very popular reading of a handful of biblical texts that uh, people think uh, on the surface teach this view. Um, but secondly, and I, and I honestly think this is more importantly, um, they, they believe it because it has been such – uh, so the dominant view for so long. And, um, and, and sometimes it, this isn't even conscious, right? They think that the, the, the popular reading just sort of makes sense. It's, it's sort of the plain, obvious reading of the texts. When they, when they, what they don't realize is that it's, it seems that way precisely because it has been the dominant view for so long. If, if somebody were dropped into the debate now, and, uh, or if the debate were just sort of land, dropped into the church's uh, lap right now, and we didn't have this history of people reading certain texts a certain way, um, I don't think that the uh, allegedly plain reading in favor of eternal torment would actually hold up as such. Uh, so when we talk about certain texts, I'm talking about things like Mark 9:48, where Jesus says that in Gehenna their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. I'm thinking of Matthew 25:46, uh, actually verse 41 and verse 46, in which Jesus says uh, that the uh, that unbelievers will go into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and that the saved will go into eternal life, but the lost into eternal punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about uh, Revelation chapter 14, which says that the smoke of the torment of beast worshippers goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. And we're talking about Revelation 20, in which uh, the the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are thrown into a lake of fire, and they're tormented forever and ever. Uh, A lake of fire into which the resurrected lost are then thrown as well. Um, There's one or two other texts, but those are sort of the prominent ones. Um, Do you want to ask, do you want me to go on to what I think are the weaknesses, or, or do you want to ask some questions first? Yeah, sure. Let me um, let me just hit one uh, one more thing to kind of you know add to like the you know I don't want to call it a proof text because that sounds pejorative, but like one more thing that that people often like, and then um, we can jump into the weakness. And this this might be a good place to start. So another uh, another thing that I find uh, people tend to in this camp uh, tend to really point to and like is the the story or the parable that Jesus tells. Um, right. Yeah, about the rich man and uh, Lazarus, right? Um, with the him in hell or in, you know, whatever. Um, so can you, you know, talk about that real quick? Yeah. So in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story, uh, whether it's a parable or a historical narrative is, uh, the matter of some debate, but he tells this story about somebody named Lazarus and a rich man that had ignored this poor man's pleadings for food and and, and mercy in life. And so in death, uh, the rich man is tormented in Hades and uh, uh, and Lazarus is comforted in the uh, bosom of Abraham. Um, Now, because so the, the King James version did future Christians a bit of a disservice. Um, the King James version is is important, and it's it's. I'm not at all trying to um, diminish its its importance and significance in church history, but um, they made a big mistake, I think, by rendering multiple Greek words in the New Testament in exactly the same way. Um, those Greek words are uh, hades, which is sort of the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew sheol. Uh, and they rendered the Greek word Gehenna and, and a couple of other words. Uh, they, they, the King James translators rendered all of these words hell, mm. giving a lot of 
Christians since the notion that what's going on in Luke chapter 16 is taking place in hell. But it's not. Remember that, as I said earlier, we're talking when we talk about hell, what we're talking about is what's going to happen when people are resurrected and judged. But uh, what's going on in Luke 16 is taking place in Hades, Hades. Uh, the, the, like I said, the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Sheol. And and we know this because, first of all, Lazarus and the rich man are explicitly said to have, be in Hades when this is happening. The text explicitly says they've been dead and buried. And the rich man's brothers are still alive, clueless of their impending doom. Um, so we know that this isn't taking place in, in hell. This is what theologians call the intermediate state uh, between death and resurrection. And uh, people who hold to my side of this debate will argue that what happens between death and resurrection um, doesn't ultimately determine what's going to take place after resurrection. So, yeah, even if we want to take this story in Luke 16 literally, what we have are um, what we have are conscious beings in the intermediate state, some of them in a bad part of Hades in which torment takes place and, 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 and in which the chasm between the bad and good sides of Hades can't be crossed. What happens after people are resurrected out of Hades, as is depicted in uh, Revelation 20, that's something that other texts will have to solve. Hmm. Okay, awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. So uh, what then, I guess, would would you point out as some of the weaknesses uh, in the traditionalist argument? Sure. Um, well, obviously, uh, and I'm trying to be careful here not to let the cat out of the bag since sure, you're going to sure. probably <laughs> ask me to give a positive case of sorts for my view. So yeah. I'll try to focus on what what could literally be or what could be more considered weaknesses. Okay. Um, okay. Number one, I think that there's a struggle for this view to make sense of substitutionary atonement. Interesting. Um, I, I, my, notice I didn't say penal substitutionary atonement, although I do believe in penal substitutionary atonement. But even taking the penal aspect of it aside, uh, putting that aside, all mainstream orthodox views of atonement um, include some sense of substitution, whether we're talking Christus Victor or ransom or satisfaction, whatever. And according to substitutionary atonement, um, Jesus bore the consequences of sin in the place of humans who deserved to, to face those consequences themselves. So if those consequences that the lost face in hell, either because if Calvinism is true, Jesus didn't bear it in their place, or if non-Calvinism is true because they didn't self-appropriate Jesus' saving work you know, on, on their behalf through faith. Either way, if the consequences of sin are immortality and everlasting life in torment in hell, then one is left to wonder, how did Jesus substitute for that since what he bore uh, on the cross was death? He he was not rendered immortal and did not live forever on the cross. He died, which is the very thing that advocates of this traditional view say cannot happen to the resurrected, lost in hell. So you so I think I think one big weakness is he struggled to make sense of substitution according to this view. Another big weakness is uh, you end up with a God who not only permits sin and evil to stay in his cosmos for all eternity, but he guarantees it by making people who commit it immortal. Mm. Um, so that's another thing that people need to um, uh, reckon with in this view. Another another issue that has to be reckoned with is how the, how the saved could possibly enjoy uh, an eternity of bliss in uh, the presence of God, knowing that loved ones in hell are suffering for all eternity. Now, 
typically the answers to this are things like, well, uh, when we are when we are given God's perspective, right? When we are transformed and glorified, and we think the way that God does, well, then we will see the righteousness of this punishment, and we'll glory in it. And and that's fine to a certain extent, except that the Bible doesn't say even God um, glories in the punishment of the lost. Quite the contrary, the Bible says that God grieves uh, having to punish the wicked. It's what they deserve, and and he and he and he gives it to them. Um, but you know, God says, I, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so, uh, if, if we're made like God is, then it would seem it would be all the more difficult to enjoy un- uninterrupted bliss in eternity, knowing that our lost loved ones are suffering in hell. You can imagine, for example, if you were on a cruise um, and you were having a blast and then you were to and then you were to find out that your loved one had been imprisoned and is in the Middle East and, and is being caned every day, you know, and, and is never going to be released. You can imagine how difficult would, it would be to enjoy the remainder of that cruise um, with that knowledge. In fact, you'd probably get, a, you know, get off that cruise and do whatever you could in, in your legal abilities to uh, to get that person out of out of prison. So, sure. yeah, you've got this problem of, of, of uh, uninterrupted bliss in heaven. I also think. A weakness of this view is that it, um, I, I think it fails to be able to reckon with a lot of the biblical data, and uh, including biblical data they themselves point to. But again, I don't want to let out the cat out of the bag prematurely before I get to my case. So I guess I'll just leave it there. So you've got some, you've got some theological, philosophical, and most importantly, biblical da- uh, issues that I don't think that this traditional view can account for. Awesome. Thank you so much. I think uh, one, two, one, or one more thing I want to want to ask you because I've I've heard uh, you make an interesting argument before that I had never heard before, but it, it kind of stuck with me. Um, and I guess it kind of falls into the realm of, of a philosophical argument. But you kind of made this this argument that if if people are consistently being punished in hell, then that means they have to be consistently sinning to con- you know to continue meriting punishment. I'm probably butchering the argument, can, but do you know what I'm talking about? Well, so a lot of people, especially in my sort of reformed uh, uh, school of thought, will say that um, the reason why. Okay, let me let me back up. This is what you're talking about is an answer that some people who hold to this view, this traditional doctrine of eternal torment, will offer when people on my side of the debate or when universalists will push back and say, "How could a lifetime, a finite lifetime of sin, merit?" an eternity of torment. And one of the answers that, and this again is something that especially my side, my reformed side of of Christianity tends to offer, uh, one answer to that dilemma is that the reason that the lost are justly and ongoingly tormented forever, putatively, is because as they're being punished for previous sins, they are continuing to be sinful and rebellious, even if only in their own conscience. And um, and by continuing to be sinful and rebellious, they accrue additional debt, additional sin debt that has to be further punished. And so you end up in this sort of vicious treadmill or this vicious, vicious cycle uh, where the lost are being punished. And while they're being punished, they accrue additional punishment. And then when that punishment is given to them, they're still accruing further punishment and so on and so forth ad infinitum into eternity. Um, so is, is that what you're getting at? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So now, whether or not – now, I, I mean, in principle, I don't think that's um, – 
uh, I don't think that's problematic. I think the okay. problem, the problems are multifold, though. One is uh, the Bible does not depict sin and evil ongoing forever throughout eternity. Okay. Um, secondly, the Bible seems to depict the judgment as being a judgment for past sins, not for future ones. Okay. Right. The uh, when 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 John in his apocalyptic vision recorded in Revelation sees the dead standing before, uh, you know, standing for judgment, a book is opened that contains their deeds, their past deeds, the ones they committed when they were still alive. And it's upon that basis that people are judged, not ongoingly judged throughout all eternity. Um, and, and, and finally, I, I, while I think that uh, putting those two problems aside, I, I think that this answer can go a certain degree to explaining um, why uh, people would go be ongoingly and justly punished in hell forever. The, I, the problem is I don't think that that is um, – I don't think that's enough to secure uh, uh, the, or to ground the truthfulness of the traditional view, because there are other ways to explain this as well, which I suppose I'll get to when I get into making my case for my view. Absolutely. Hello. You are listening to The Theology Doesn't Suck Podcast. Dude, Marty, no. That's people don't want to hear it that way, man. It has to be it has to be more enthusiastic like this. Do you love theology doesn't suck? Have you been listening to this show because you truly believe theology doesn't suck? The, no, dude. What? Dude, that's that's like that's it's so nerdy. Like people are like people don't think that's genuine, man. That sounds so weird. Well, it needs to be something like this. It needs to be like you know, hey guys, like, I don't know if you realize, but we have a patron feed and it's, it's so awesome because like you get a lot of really cool stuff and you just like, you just have to give us some yeah, money. Yeah, but we can't just straight up be like, hey, yo, give us your money. Cause that's like, people don't want to do that either. It's disrespectful to our listeners. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Okay. So how about we do something like this? How about we do like, hey guys, it's Josh and Marty okay. from Theology Doesn't Suck podcast and you know here's the thing we love doing this podcast but you know as you probably know it takes a lot of effort and like we've got an awesome guy behind the scenes named matt who does like all of our awesome editing and all that stuff and you know it takes equipment and time and so like you know one of the things that we love about today's day and age is that there can be people out there that love our show so much that you just want to support us and so Josh, we started this awesome patron feed, and like, Josh, how, how can they find it? Like, what, what kind of stuff should they look oh, for? Well, yeah, and then we, we, well, we could tell them then, like, hey, go to patreon.com slash theology doesn't suck, and whereas for as little as $1 a month, right, you could become a patron, uh, and we have some different, you know, we could tell them about the different tiers, you know, where, where some tiers gives you access to a, a Facebook group specifically for patrons that allows you to do things like submit questions to be asked on episodes, uh, submit questions for bonus content, which, hey, bonus content is a part of another tier, some bonus episodes that are, you know, close to the public. So we could tell them those kind of things, right? Yeah, and, and one of the things we could do, which would be really cool, Josh, is like every once in a while, just because we're really good people, we could like send them stuff either digitally or like through actual mail. That's kind of cool. Like, you know, like I play in a band. So like, what if we come up with a CD and like we've got a CD and I just want to send it to oh, them yeah. or something, you know, like, you know, like that's another cool idea. So like, you know, maybe that could be like some of the higher tiers. So like they would, you know, they would never know that something cool was coming, but then like, 
hey, surprise, this is coming to you. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. And, like, we could say, like, Christmas cards, cute stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that, that'd be great. Stuff. How about, yeah. all right, well, uh, then how about we just tell people that and, uh, yeah, hopefully they go to patreon.com slash theology doesn't suck and uh, join our, yeah. you know, theology doesn't suck community. I, Josh, I think I think this is a good way for us to do this. So, I think okay, let's record this and wait, dude. I've been recording this whole. Oh time. yeah, me too. Let, oh, all right, how about this? Let's just send this to Matt and uh, we'll just go with it. Yeah. All right. All great. right. Thanks, guys. We love you. Back to the show. Awesome. Well, thank you. And I so I did. I kind of lied and and I meant. Uh, when I said that I had one more question, this just came to me, uh, but I think it's important and you kind of touched on it. But one thing that I noticed you didn't do is you didn't say that the traditional view, somehow God is mean or he's unjust or he's, you know, a bully or whatever for wanting to torture people in hell forever. And I think that's often a common argument that, uh, people who, um, don't hold a traditional uh, view, try to make. And so I just think it's interesting that you personally don't try to take on uh, that perspective. Well, for one thing, I don't share the intuition of the kinds of people that you've described. And so right. I'm just being honest by not using it. But secondly, you know, I don't, I would not want to be in uh, the shoes of somebody who uh, said that a view they reject makes God out to be a moral monster and only to find out in the end that that view they rejected <laughs> is actually truthful. And now they've got to defend to God why they called him a moral monster. Yeah. Um, but, but, but thirdly, I'll just say, um, I, I, I guess part of the reason I don't find that argument for alternatives to the traditional view compelling is because I know that um, even if um, that e even if what is going on in hell, if ever, if eternal torment is true, is painful and terrible and um, unconscionable, you know, def just breaks our heart. It's nevertheless what this view maintains is the just consequence for uh, their sins, whether only in this life or in the afterlife as well. So, you know, look, justice is sometimes painful. And uh, I don't think that it behooves us. I don't think it's wise to reject a view just because it seems to make God out to be mean when you could say the same thing about somebody who locks somebody up in prison for, a, you know, committing murder. Sure. Great. Awesome. Well, I guess uh, what we'll do is then we'll go ahead and, and make a shift here and we'll jump to another perspective represented in uh, your guys' resources, the, the Hell Triangle, uh, known as universalism. And we have... Um, done an episode on this before with Dan Koch. Uh, so listeners, you guys can find that if you, you go back, but I know uh, that Chris will for sure have some uh, helpful things that he would like to add or maybe even challenge uh, within that realm. So uh, universalism, what is it? And uh, why do people make this argument? Sure. So universalism is uh, the view that all humankinds, and typically this also includes all angelic beings, including Satan himself, that all creatures will be reconciled savingly to God in the end. Now, there are multiple uh, variations of this view, some of which I consider to be Christian and some of which I do not. Uh, the views that I don't, I don't consider to be Christian are sort of outright pluralistic views of universalism, where everybody goes to heaven when they die, no matter what they believe 
can do. It's just everybody goes there, period. Um, I think that makes mockery of the Bible's insistence that salvation is through Christ alone and by faith alone. But then there are um, universalists like Robin Perry and uh, probably Brad Jersak and Eric Rattan and others uh, who I think properly go by the phrase uh, evangelical universalist because what they believe is that um, when, you know, on the day of judgment, when people are raised to be judged, some will in fact go to hell uh, and be justly punished for their sins there, but that while so being punished, the opportunity remains open for them to repent and express saving faith in Christ, and that eventually, even after, even if it takes eons, eventually every such creature will in fact uh, so repent and exercise saving faith in Christ and thereby be rescued from hell and join the uh, the host of, of heaven, as it were. Um, so, you know, as much as I think this view is uh, lacking any biblical support whatsoever, and, and although I've, I really struggle to think of why God would um, keep somebody alive indefinitely um, in pain, hoping that eventually they'll repent, uh, nevertheless, I can't think of anything heretical about this view. Um, so I'm comfortable calling people who hold to this sort of evangelical brand of universalism brothers and sisters in Christ, even if I think they're a little out to lunch, including <laughs> Dan Koch, who I have a big heart for, and, and we've interacted on a number of other shows in the past. Um, now, what motivates this view? Well, uh, there's, of course, the, um, the, the, the view of God, especially as revealed in Jesus, who um, does not, uh, is not violent toward people and who seeks out the lost, um, who is willing to put the 99 aside to go chase after the one, you know, and who, who himself, as he's um, uh, being executed on the cross unjustly, prays to his father that they would forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Um, so we've got the character of God is revealed, especially in Jesus. We've also got, um, so this is, this is especially important for somebody like Robin Perry. You've got sort of a theological meta narrative throughout scripture where you've got, um, uh, God spending the whole, uh, the whole biblical timeline pursuing and, and making reconciliation possible with the expectation that eventually all sin and evil will be um, uh, uh, undone and, and, and all sinful and, and, and wicked people will eventually be transformed and, 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 and will repent and turn to Christ, etc. So it's sort of this big, you know, the, the, way, the way that um, Robin Perry likes to paint it is the hell of the eternal torment view is like uh, a torture rack. The hell of my view is like the guillotine, um, but the hell in universalism is more like a hospital. And so he, he so a lot of universalists will want to say hell as a hospital where people are reformed and 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 uh, uh, healed better fits this meta narrative than the other two views. Um, but again, most. Importantly, although I don't think this plays out in reality for, for people who hold this view, a lot of universalists would say that most importantly, they, they think they're motivated to believe in it by scripture. Um, and I think this is especially true of a tiny handful of texts in Paul. Uh, so, for example, um, Paul says that by, uh, you know, all in Adam died and so all in Christ will be made alive, you know, and uh, and he says similar statements in uh, elsewhere. Um so you have, but, but frankly, I think that's really it in terms of scripture. You've got like two or three texts by Paul, and then you've got uh, a whole bunch of other texts that are just totally, uh, I think, twisted and, and all sorts of um, uh, eisegesis is done in order to read into those other texts this view. I think the only ones that um, 
that non-universalists have to deal with are those ones I mentioned, and then also maybe the one in um, uh, again in Paul. I think he's writing to one of the, the pastoral epistles. He says that Christ is the uh, the savior of all mankind, and not only those who believe. Or, or maybe it's the other way around. He's the savior of Christians and even for the whole world. Yeah. So, so those are some some of the things that motivate the uh, this universalist view. Okay, and then also, um, and maybe you don't know, and also this book hasn't come out yet, <laughs> but I know that David Bentley Hart, who, uh, to my understanding, is like an Eastern Orthodox kind of uh, theologian, uh, he's putting out a book soon, uh, I think it's coming out actually this month, um, called That All Shall Be Saved, and I think he's going to make a universalist case um, that sounds kind of similar to what you've articulated. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, would you know more about that? Or, and if not, we can just, you know leave that as a passing comment. I don't know. No, I'm not familiar with David Bentley Hart's um, argument. Do do you know what, when you say that it sounds like the case he's going to make is a little bit different from mine. Can you explain how? Oh, well, maybe I, I phrased myself wrong. I think, I think what he's going to do is articulate something very similar to um, perhaps like, and I don't know Robin Perry's, you know, arguments very well. Uh. Um, I think it's going to be something along those lines because from my understanding, he kind of comes from like an Eastern Orthodox kind of background. And also from my understanding, um, there's like a universalism there, but they still believe in some form of of punishment, not like the metaphor of the hospital, uh, so to speak. So I just wanted to see if, you know, you were savvy to anything that he's done because – uh, just out of interest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm not I'm not savvy when it comes to him specifically, but I know a little bit about um, Eastern Orthodoxy and 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 the doctrine of hell therein. My understanding is that Eastern Orthodoxy has historically been much more permitting of diversity on this question mm-hmm. than okay. Roman okay. Catholicism or Protestantism. Um, the 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 East and and I think it's in part because of how they view the eschaton, which I don't think is all that terribly different from how those other two branches of Christendom I just described view it, but they're much more explicit about it. Namely, okay. namely that hell that hell is where all human beings, all resurrected human beings, will um, enter into the presence of God, and uh, and and what that allows Eastern Orthodox uh, people to do, um, or at least it, well, this is how I see it anyway, is it allows them to conceive of what that presence of God is going to do to unbelievers in a number of different ways. So there are people in the Eastern Orthodox tradition who have said that the presence of God, the, this loving, glorious presence of the, of God, is uh, is is um, it, it torments people mm-hmm. that that don't like it. Right. right so people right. are raised they're enter They enter into the presence of God, the God they wanted to have nothing to do with. They can't stand the loving glory of God. And so it torments them psychologically in that way. Right. Um, and then universalists will similarly say, um, or could similarly say that the presence of God is so overwhelming, so powerful or whatever, that, that it sort of, uh, it burns the dross or, you know, it, it, it burns up the chaff of, of, a sinful, lost person's sinful nature, leaving behind a penitent soul who, you know, repents and exercises faith in Christ. And so it's this presence of God that overwhelms disbelief, overwhelms unbelief and and, and wickedness, and eventually brings about the salvation of all. Mm. But 
there are also, if I'm not mistaken, uh, people in the tradition of Eastern Orthodoxy who would say that the presence of God does something else. And which, okay. again, I, I don't want to give the cat out of the bag since sure, we're sure, going to get into my view pretty soon. Yeah, we're about to jump in there. And actually, uh, something just came to mind that I, I just think is interesting. I haven't, man, thought about this in forever or talked to this person in a really long time. But I remember back in college, I had a buddy who stole – um, an idea from uh, the Reformed tradition, more specifically uh, from five-point Calvinism. He takes the I, uh, irresistible grace, mm. and then he applies that at, like post-mortem basically. So, and then uses that to create a form of universalism. So everybody eventually, you know, goes into the presence of God. God's grace is then irresistible. So therefore, everybody's saved. I just thought that was interesting. I don't know, you know, my brain is doing silly stuff, jumping back to that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's, I guess. All another, our brains do silly yeah, things. That's another move, uh, you know, that I guess some people could try to make. It doesn't convince me, but um, I digress because uh, what I what I do really want to do is because we have been really teasing it and um, I know maybe you might be chomping at the bit to, to speak positively about about your view. So uh, conditionalism, uh, the sure. view that you are here representing, uh, what is it? And, you know, just give it to us. <laughs> yeah. Well, before I give it to you, let me just uh, say a little bit more about the hell triangle okay, because it will okay. help to to frame what I'm about to say. The, the reason for the shape of the triangle is not only because there are three views, but because interestingly, um, each pair of views where you sit them wherever you situate them on the triangle, they share something in common that the third view does not. And we capture mm. that uh, uh, visually by the side that connects the two views that share that thing in common. And if people are looking, if any of your listeners are, are looking at that hell triangle right now, they'll see that between the traditionalism and universalism uh, corners of the triangle, the side says universal immortality. Mm-hmm. And that's really the critical distinction between both of those two views and the view that I main, that the view that I maintain. Um, my view is sometimes uh, called annihilationism, mm-hmm. but I prefer the, the label conditional immortality, uh, which is for short conditional because uh, both of those two other views say that when the lost are raised from the dead, actually when everybody's raised from the dead, everybody will be made bodily immortal and and, and they'll forever after live either in heaven or hell. Um, Our view is that immortality is conditional. It's conditioned uh, and only people who meet the condition are made immortal. And that condition in our case is salvation. Um, So it's called conditional immortality because you, you have to meet the condition in order for God to grant you immortality. If you don't meet that condition, then when you are raised, you will remain mortal, you will be judged, and you will be sentenced to death, and you will literally die a second time and forever. That's why we think it's called the second death in the book of Revelation, because it's literally the second time that most human beings that will have, uh, th- that go there um, will have died. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it's sometimes called annihilationism is because uh, for people that are traditional dualists who believe that human beings have both a material body and an immaterial soul, most such dualists would say that, uh, based on texts like Matthew 10, 28, that whereas the human soul survives, uh, so to 
speak, beyond the first death, remaining conscious until it's one day reunited with its resurrection body. In the second death, Jesus says, it seems to say in Matthew 10, 28, both the body and the soul will be destroyed. So the second death is not just second uh, dying a second time. It's also uh, compl- be, uh, ceasing to be entirely. If both your body and your soul are destroyed and no longer have life, then there's really nothing to ha- there's nothing left to be conscious mm-hmm. Um you know, and so that's so they've been annihilated in that respect. Um, now, what motivates this? Uh, or actually, do you want to ask me any questions about that before I go on? Well, just an observation, actually. So, when for me personally, when I uh, because you know, just for clarity, and I don't, I mean, I don't know why you would know this, but for me, I kind of bounce between conditionalism and the universalism. But what what really like this distinction that you just made was extremely helpful for me and it actually pushes me um to like the annihilationist conditionalist uh kind of understanding uh mm. specifically the idea about um with death and like death as the thing that Jesus was you know came uh to defeat Jesus you know death is a thing that that all human beings have in common um and Jesus you know defeats death and i think that's a very scriptural thing to say and then just the idea um, that if Jesus defeated death and now all of a sudden everybody, you know, gets life again uh, or immortality, uh, it seems like it, you know, it doesn't quite hold up. So for me, that distinction that you just made was huge, huge, huge and very mm. helpful. Well, I'm glad. I'm happy to take credit for that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so anyway, what motivates this view is, uh, at least for some people, it is in part um, some of the things we talked about earlier, the, the notion, you know, the intuition that some people have that an eternity of punishing uh, would be unjust um, or, or that a God who is merciful would not keep somebody alive forever in order to, um, to punish them ongoingly. Um, uh, but, but really, I think what most motivates this view is what I think is its clear um, uh, support from Scripture. I have become convinced that that there are few doctrines more clearly taught by Scripture than this one. Um, That includes, uh, you know, the Trinity, the deity of Christ. Even as a five-point Calvinist, I think that even this view is, uh, is at the very least, equal in clarity to what I think I see Scripture teaching, Um, not to mention, uh, you know, salvation by faith alone or or a host of other things. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it, it really is motivated by Scripture uh, more than anything else. It's also motivated, though, by what I mentioned earlier. There seems to be a consistency um, between this view of hell and substitutionary atonement, okay. because Jesus on the cross bore the death penalty. He literally died. So it would seem to make sense that the wages of sin is death, which, by the way, one of the biblical writers <laughs> said in, yeah. in Romans 23. <laughs> so it makes sense that, that Christ bore the consequences of sin namely death, and therefore those who have to face those consequences themselves will actually face death rather than being made immortal so they can live forever in torment. Um, and there are other theological issues. You know, I, I mentioned a moment ago uh, the idea of uh, the, the problem that the traditional view has when it comes to uninterrupted bliss in heaven, because I know from experience, having lost two unborn children, that mm. grieving is a process that lasts only a finite period of time, or at the very least, um, it, it, it seems to be asymptotic, right? It, it keeps approaching zero. Um, so I think that in this view, uh, the lost can be finally executed, finally destroyed, and the saved are going to grieve, but that grief isn't going to last forever. Um, 
so I think it has that strength going forward. I think it also has the, the theological strength of uh, what I mentioned earlier concerning God's holiness. You know, this is a view according to which God destroys all sin and, and gets rid of all sin from the cosmos rather than making sure that sin goes on forever by immortalizing people that who uh, by people who do it. Um so, and then in terms of weaknesses, honestly, the only weakness I think it has uh, is tradition. Um, sure. This is a view that I think enjoyed very strong support in the earliest centuries of the church. Um, Ignatius of Antioch and Clement of Rome were both, were both first century, second century Christians who seemed to teach this view. Irenaeus of Lyon uh, from the second century seemed to teach this view. Uh, Arnobius of the third century did as well, um, although he's uh, a bit of a, a sore spot in some people's thinking. Uh, and even Athanasius the Great, uh, who, who defended Trinitarian orthodoxy between the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople, um, even he seems to have um, at least inclined toward this view, because in his uh, treatise on the incarnation of the word, he said that the reason Jesus became a human being um, was to prevent mankind from slipping back to the non-existence whence they came, uh, because they had earned non-existence by having sinned. So, um, so it does have that early traditional support, but beginning at least with Augustine, like I said, and I think around the fifth century, um, the doctrine of eternal torment really became the dominant view, and it has remained such ever since. And that's that's a weakness of, of this view, um, I, I must admit. Okay. Can I – so I'm going to do my best, and I'm probably going to fail at this, but I'm going to try to put on a conditionalism kind of hat and, like, ask you questions uh, about your view. Okay. Right, can we give that a go? Did you did you mean you were going to put on a traditionalist hat? Like yes. A, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take off my cool Washington Capitals hat that I'm currently wearing. <laughs> <laughs> no. All right. So um, <clears throat> with that in mind, uh, people oh, – man, I'm bad at putting on hats because I'm going to say people. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if we have this understanding, you know, in scripture where it talks about, you know, people – uh, going and and you know they'll be the burning forever and the the fire and the the smoke will never cease and you know the maggots will never uh, you know stop eating it. It seems like uh, within traditionalism that uh, this tor- it's very clear that punishment uh, is eternal and 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 on forever. Can you kind of um, you know what what would you say to somebody who has thoughts like that? Well, so, yeah, and, and those are um, exactly the kinds of things that most convinced me of this view, because what I discovered was that with virtually no exception, every single proof text cited historically in support of eternal torment proves upon closer examination to be better support for the view that I now hold. Mm-hmm. And that includes literally every single one of the texts that you just alluded to. Yeah. And, and you did, in fact, allude to several. So let's talk about Matthew 25, 41 and 46 first, which is that text I mentioned earlier that mentions eternal fire and eternal punishment. Um, um, Jesus, Jesus did not first use the phrase eternal fire there. He used it earlier in Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9, where he set it up as a parallel to what he called Gehenna, which is a New Testament transliteration of an Old Testament phrase uh, that, that is the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. Uh, this was a valley also known as Topheth, where um, uh, enemies of God had uh, sacrificed children in fire to Molech and other pagan gods. And God promised in passages like Jeremiah 730, uh, 
733, I think it was, that this Valley of Topheth, this Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, would one day be called the Valley of Slaughter because God would slay his enemies and their dead bodies would be strewn about the ground and would be consumed by scavenging beasts and birds. Mm. Um, this is the picture that we see elsewhere also in the Old Testament to which Jesus alludes when he uses the phrase, the word Gehenna, and he sets that up as a parallel with the phrase eternal fire. Um, and Jesus wasn't even the first to use language like eternal fire. It, it's a language that Isaiah had used. Um, I, I don't remember the exact reference, so people will have to look it up. Uh, but there's a place in Isaiah, I believe it is, where he where he says, who can dwell with everlasting burnings? Mm. And um, there's really only one of two possible answers to that question. Either the saved— um, only they can dwell with everlasting burnings, in which case it follows that the lost cannot. Sure. Or um, the answer is nobody, that it's, high, that it's a rhetorical question. And either one of those two possible answers to the question um, is really hard to square with the traditional view, which maintains that the lost will be able to dwell with everlasting burnings forever. Um and then also it's worth noting that Jude uses the phrase eternal fire to describe the fire that came down from heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the parallel to that passage in Jude, Second Peter 2, um, Peter says that, uh, that uh, God made Sodom and Gomorrah an example by reducing them to ashes. Um, so it seems to me that eternal fire in passages like these we've discussed does not at all lend itself to the traditional view. Eternal fire seems to be the fire of God that completely destroys. Um, eternal punishment is set up as it, it, it is it is it is a parallel to eternal life in Matthew twenty five forty six, but it's not only a parallel. Um, in both cases, this is the, these are these are two word phrases. One word is the adjective ionios in Greek, which means okay. eternal or everlasting. But the other word, the noun described by that adjective, uh, that is not parallel. It's a contrast. So the saved, um, the, the the righteous, Jesus says, will go into eternal life. Um, the, the lost, the unrighteous also get something eternal, but they don't get life. They get eternal punishment. So the question becomes, well, what then is this eternal punishment? Well, if it's not life, it would seem to follow that that punishment is therefore death. And even Augustine himself, even though he uh, was attempting to defend the traditional view, said that um, we measure the duration of capital punishment not in the time that it takes to die, but in the time that one is dead. Mm. So if the lost are resurrected, judged, and destroyed, and they never ever live again, their punishment, that punishment being death, is eternal. Um, and that, like I said, seems to fit the context better since he uses, since Jesus uses the phrase eternal fire, which is fire that destroys. And because he says this punishment must exclude life. Uh, death is the most natural reading of Matthew 25, 41 to 46. Do you want me to go on to some of those other ones you mentioned or? No, um, I mean, that's up to you, man. If you want to, uh, go for it. If not, I mean, I think you, uh, it did fairly well though. I guess the distinction that I was trying to pull out was that, um, I'm trying to do this well, is that the the punishment itself, the the result of the punishment, I guess, is eternal in nature. Within uh, conditionalism, if you cease to exist, if you're annihilated, the nature of that is eternal. So it still squares with a lot of those texts. Is that like a good way to dumb that down and, and say it in few words? Well, so I, I think that the simplest way to put it is something like what I did, which is that if the punishment is death and if right. that death is forever, right. then it's an everlasting punishment by perfect. definition. Yeah, perfect. But I think you're touching on something which is worth unpacking a little bit, which okay. is how 
how could a um, punishment that is death, you know, a punishment that's brought about at a point in time, and then the outcome of it lasts, the outcome of the punishing lasts forever in the form of death, how could that be described as eternal punishment? Um, and for this, we have uh, precedent elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, the author writes that Jesus secured eternal redemption for us, and he secured eternal salvation for us. And no Orthodox Christian thinks that Jesus will forever be redeeming or saving. Rather, the outcome of his finite process of saving or his finite process of redeeming, the outcome of both of those things is is the noun, redemption or salvation, and that goes on forever. Likewise, um, the verb here that correlates to the noun punishment is punish. And that could be a uh, something that takes place in a finite duration of time, namely the time it takes to kill the wicked. But their punishment is the resulting death, and that death will last forever. Um, so you can go the easier way or that slightly more difficult way uh, to get to an explanation. But but I do think, and, and I'm under no time constraints, and so okay, if, you, okay. if, if you aren't, I'd be happy to address some of the other texts sure, you alluded absolutely. to as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm good. I, I wanted to respect your time. That's why I was hesitant. I, you know, I told you a certain amount of time, and I wanted to respect that. But if you're good, then, then go for it. It's it's funny it's funny because I often tell my guests oh it should be about an hour and then it ends up going two or longer I I okay. I'm I love it um I could talk about this stuff for hours Perfect. uh so really it's going to be your time constraint I think that has to be respected um, all right all right. The, the next text that you alluded to, and this is uh, this is one that really caught my attention when I was first beginning to explore this, um, is Mark 9:48, in which Jesus says that in Gehenna, uh, or you know, translated hell, their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. Mm-hmm. And the typical way that the traditional view sort of uh, leverages this text is by saying the worm must have bodies, uh, you know, flesh to consume forever, because if it doesn't, then it will eventually die of starvation. And likewise, the fire must have fuel to burn forever, or else it would eventually die out. Um, what there, there are a number of problems, though, with this reading, um, not the least of which is that Jesus did not come up with this language on his own. He's quoting almost verbatim Isaiah 66, 24, in which Isaiah says explicitly, that it is corpses that are being consumed by this worm and by this fire. Mm. That's really important, given what I said earlier, that according to the traditional view, the resurrected lost are made immortal and will live embodied forever. They're the opposite of corpses. Right. right? But but here, it's corpses. Okay. Um, secondly, um, the, the text does not say the worm will never die or the fire will never be quenched. Um, the word, It says they will not die. And this is something that's used all throughout uh, the scripture to say that something isn't going to happen at a particular time. Um, for example, uh, Joseph tells his brothers when, when, when he knows who they are and they don't yet know who he is, he tells them that if they, if, that if they obey him in this certain way, I think it's if they leave their brother with him and go tell their father to join them and come back to him, then they won't die. Okay. But obviously he's not promising them immortality. That's absurd. Sure. He's telling them you won't die in this particular context I'm talking about. So what is the context here in um, where it says the worm will not die and the fire will not be quenched? Well, unquenchable fire throughout the scriptures is not a fire that will never die out. That's not what quench even means. Quench means to put out, to extinguish. And when a fire is unable to be extinguished, it completely devours that which it's burning. And this is exactly how the text is used throughout the scriptures. In fact, um, 
In Matthew 3.12, I think it is, uh, John the Baptist says that Jesus will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. And the word burn there is the Greek word katakayo. This is really important because the Greek word kayo just simply means to burn. Mm -hmm. But the Greek word katakayo means to completely burn up, to be reduced to ashes. Um, You see this contrast in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament completed in the years leading up to Christ. When they render the text in Exodus where Moses encounters the bush that's burning but isn't consumed, they render the the Hebrew for burn with kayo, it was burning, but they render it was not consumed with it was not katakayo. Ah, So it was not completely burned up. Yeah. and and and, and uh, John the Baptist here in Matthew three twelve says that Jesus will burn up the chaff with what unquenchable fire, hmm. and this is how unquenchable fire is used throughout the whole Bible. Now the undying worm is a little trickier because there's far less of that idiom used throughout Scripture than, than unquenchable fire. But back in that passage I mentioned earlier, Jeremiah seven thirty three. Um, or at least Jeremiah 7 more broadly, uh, those corpses, God says, of God's slain enemies, their loved ones won't be able to frighten scavenging beasts and birds away from uh, from the corpses of, of these people's loved ones. And uh, what's going to happen if you can't frighten away scavengers from the bodies they're trying to eat up? Well, they're going to completely burn up the bodies. Mm-hmm. And especially since this undying worm is a parallel to the unquenchable fire, we know that that is also what is being said. The maggots feeding upon the bodies won't die and thereby be prevented from fully consuming their meal. So so Mark uh, – in, in, now, now here's the thing. I want to stress this. Um, I'm not here arguing that New Testament authors can't repurpose or co-opt Old Testament texts and use them in new and creative ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New Testament authors being um, inspired to write what they wrote by the Holy Spirit can do all sorts of creative things with the Old Testament uh, that we would not legitimately be able to do ourselves. Sure. But the thing that's important here is that Jesus adds nothing in Mark 9 that, that – elaborates upon or in any way indicates that Jesus means something different when he quotes Isaiah 66, 24 than what was originally meant. Um, and so I think that rules out the kinds of novel interpretations that um, defenders of the tradition try to uh, pull out of this text. Mm. Um, so, and then there was, I'll tell you what, there's, there's one other text you alluded to. And then if you want to ask me about others, I, I'm happy to discuss them, but okay. you mentioned, you mentioned smoke rising forever from mm-hmm. torment. Mm-hmm. Um, you're there alluding to uh, Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 to 11. And um, there's so much that could be said about this passage. Um, but the most important two things, and there are others I can mention as well if need be, are that, number one, what we're seeing here is not a straightforward didactic text um, meant to be taken literally the way that any other epistle might or the way that the um, the Gospels uh, are intended to be. Sure. We're dealing here with John's record of an apocalyptic vision that he received while he was on exile on the island of Patmos. And the all throughout the scriptures, Old Testament knew these kinds of apocalyptic visions are uh, are, are extremely symbolic, not to, not meant to be taken literally. Um, it goes back at least as far as when Joseph is in prison with Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker. Um, they report to him these bizarre dreams that they have, like the baker says he had three baskets on his head. Um, Pharaoh himself, when Joseph is released from prison, tells Pharaoh, uh, Joseph that he had a dream where seven cows come up out of the Nile, and then seven sickly cows came up out of the Nile after them and ate the first seven. Well, 
this bizarre, perplexing, weird imagery um, has a meaning, but the meaning is not identical to what's going on in the imagery. And oftentimes it's, it's not exactly obvious what the correlation is. Imagine if we had never had Joseph's interpretation of the, of the baker's dream in prison. Mm-hmm. We would never guess that the three baskets on the baker's head in his dream represented three days after which the baker would be killed. But that's what Joseph tells him it means. And if we had interpreted Pharaoh's dream and didn't have Joseph's interpretation of it to go by, we would puzzle and scratch our heads and probably wouldn't figure out on our own that the seven healthy cows that first came up out of the Nile represented seven years of, 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 of plenty and of abundance, and that the seven sickly cows that came up out of the Nile after them and ate the first seven represented a second set of seven years, this time characterized by famine. We wouldn't figure all that out, but that's what Joseph tells him it means. Right. And it's the same idea here in Revelation. We've got this bizarre symbolism that we've got to be very careful about how we interpret. That's the first important thing. The second important thing is that this very imagery um, of, of smoke rising forever from torment and of fire and brimstone and of drinking the fullest measure of God's wrath, all of these images sort of combine in Revelation 14, 9 to 11. All, those, all three of those things are used again a little bit later in Revelation in chapters 18 and 19, um, where they describe what happens to mystery Babylon, this, this blood-drunk vampiric prostitute riding on the back of this seven-headed ten-horned beast. Um, um, the text says that uh, she receives God's uh, – she drinks from God's wrath. Um, it, it, she is tormented with fire and brimstone. And then at the very beginning of Revelation chapter 19, a, cryos, a chorus cries out, hallelujah, the smoke rises from her forever. So we've got all three of those same symbolic elements that we have in Revelation 14. But when an angel interprets this imagery for John at the end of Revelation 18, the angel tells John that this imagery symbolizes that a city represents by that harlot will be destroyed and found no longer. Mm-hmm. So, so in John's own book, and, and, and the angel's interpretation of the exact same imagery in Revelation 18 and 19, it, it represents destruction. And so we don't really have the right to come up with creative interpretations of Revelation 14 that treat it much more literalistically than John intends. Yeah. We ought to let John's own book dictate for us how this imagery ought to be interpreted. And when we do, we find out that it lends itself far more to my view on this debate than to the traditional one. Yeah, that's really helpful. That's really good. <clears throat> also, too, just uh, something that, that happened to me <clears throat> in the, the previous church that I used to work for. I, I had a student come up to me one time, um, and they asked a question. They were like, so, like, during Jesus' time, you've said before that the reason he, you know, talked in with parables and used a lot of farming stuff is because people were farmers, right? I'm like, okay. And he said, well, if Jesus talks about people, you know, kind of getting, you know, cut down as wheat and and chaff and thrown into the fire, then people weren't stupid. They knew that wheat would burn up and and cease to exist, right? (laughs) And so it's just something I thought about again uh, while you were speaking. It's just, um, I mean, perhaps you've heard an argument similar to that before. And I mean, you made, you just made that exact argument, um, you know, a couple minutes ago in our conversation um, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting, you know, that, that a student, you know, a, a 13, 14 year old uh, student, you know, kind of came up with that, that insight. 
Yeah, it's it's a fantastic insight, and it's exactly the dynamic we see in Matthew 13. Yeah. Uh, in, in Matthew 13, Jesus tells this parable of weeds and tares, and the weeds are growing up to, together. Sorry, not weeds and tares, uh, weeds and, and wheat. Right. Uh, tares right. and wheat. And 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 the farmhands uh, or the farmers' farmhands tell him, "Should we let the wheat grow together with the with the weeds with the, with the tares, or, or the other way around?" And he says, "Yes, let them grow together." Um, and then and then the time comes where he commands them, "Take the tares out, bind." them and throw them into the fire to be burned up. And there again, the word is katakayo, completely burned up. Yeah. And then and then, and then, then in verse 40, I think it is, it, Jesus is interpreting that parable, and he says that in the same way that the farmer said, bind the tares up in bundles and throw them into the fire to be burned, so will the wicked be thrown into a fiery furnace. And there, not only is he you know, not only has he told you what he's talking about with, by means of that parable, but he's also alluding to Malachi four, in which the wicked Malachi says will be reduced uh, to uh, they will be like tares thrown into a furnace of fire, mm-hmm. and they'll be reduced to ashes beneath the soles of the righteous. Um, all all of this language, as you said, um, that Jesus uses all throughout Matthew, especially, but in other gospels as well. Um, lends itself to the view of hell I'm here promoting and, and really challenges the tradition, even though the tradition likes to think that they are the ones following Jesus's plain words. Yeah, no, I love it, man. This, I mean, shoot, this like just this conversation alone has has been so hof- uh, helpful uh, for myself and uh, hopefully helpful for listeners as well. I know um, maybe you'll be pleased to know this, uh, you know, digging deeper in, into to your work, listening to some of uh, the lectures and things that you have given uh, this conversation, but also just, you know, all the stuff done at Rethinking Hell uh, definitely pushes me very, very strongly <laughs> into mm-hmm. like a conditionalist perspective. And um, I think at the end of the day, and I know I've said something maybe, uh, actually, I didn't say something different than this before, but uh, at the end of the day, I think I'm a conditionalist, but maybe just with a little bit of, you know, hopeful universalism, like, (laughs) like, Mm. you know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, if, if universalism turns out to be true, then like, I'm not going to be upset about it. Um, but I think conditionalism just, you know, theologically, uh, biblically, um, you know, philosophically, like, like, I think it covers all the bases. It's just such a, a solid and strong argument. So thank you so much uh, for the work that you've done. Thank you for the work, you know, that, that, uh, your, your, uh, your buddies, your friends, your, your, um, <laughs> you know, your teammates. Yeah. I yeah. couldn't, man, uh, ha- have done at rethinking hell as well. And like, I just, I wanted to ask you real quick, um, what, what are some resources <clears throat> that maybe, uh, you would like to, to point people to, I mean, I'm going to link like rethinking hell.com, uh, in the, in the show notes. Also, I was going to link, um, the two books, uh, Rethinking Hell and also A Consuming Passion as well. But is, is there anything else that, uh, you might, you know, you think might be helpful for, for people that want to continue this, uh, conversation? Yeah, sure. Uh, I would encourage listeners, um, if they're somewhat academically inclined, to pick up a copy of Edward Fudge's The Fire That Consumes, uh, the third edition of it, published by Whippenstock. Um, If they're not so academically minded, I would encourage them to pick up uh, a copy of Hell, A Final Word, because that's sort of the popular level equivalent to The Fire That Consumes. And by the way, if you don't want to go through the process of writing all this down, I'll send you these links after we're done. Perfect. That would be super helpful. Thank you. 
you. Sure, sure. Uh, one of the benefits, I guess, to you sharing your camera and not and not me. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I will share those links with you. Uh, but okay. those are some books that I would encourage people to check out if they want to get sort of like a debate book. Um, okay. I would encourage them to get the first and second editions of Zondervan's Four Views of Hell. Okay. Um, those are some good options. Uh, if people want to get some of my academic journal articles, I've got uh, uh, a couple of journal articles published at my um, – or made available at my academia.edu profile, so I'll show okay. you that link as well, sure. including uh, an argument uh, – including a journal article I published arguing that the uh, – that substitutionary atonement is more consistent with conditional immortality than with the traditional view. Um, so it's, it's that argument I made but unpacked a lot more fully. Yeah, um, I'm excited about – I personally am going through read that. I'm very excited about that. <laughs> yeah. And I've also got an article there that I think people will appreciate. It's it's on hell and apologetics. Okay. Um, and in it, I argue, because sometimes, I mean, I, never mind. I, I won't, we could say this for another show possibly, but <laughs> okay. yeah. So I'll give you that academia link um, so you can include it. And then uh, also our, our Rethinking Hell YouTube channel. Okay. Um, we just recently had a uh, had our sixth annual conference and we've just started putting up some of the videos from that conference. Very cool. uh, and, and there are also videos from our previous conference conferences as well. So there's a whole lot of video resources there if people want it. Uh, and then finally, I guess I'm very accessible. I love to talk about this or any other issue, provided that um, people who disagree with me can still talk charitably and lovingly. Absolutely. And so if people want to uh, connect with me on Facebook, I'm available on Facebook at, I think it's just facebook.com slash Chris Date. And, uh, and then I also um, am happy to respond to emails. People can reach out to me at Chris Date at rethinkinghell.com. So I guess those are some Hopefully that's a, a glut of links for you to include in your in your show notes. Yeah, no, that's perfect, and I'll be sure to do that. I'll, I'll be looking for that email. And thank you, by the way. I th- you're the first person who was like, "Hey, I can just send you those links." Without <laughs> writing it down. <laughs> well, it's it's a probably so, because I'm a podcaster myself, and absolutely. so I know how much easier it is when my guests do that. Yeah, absolutely. And also, too, I know you you just barely started to to touch on it, but. Um, I've, I've also, you know, I've listened to, to other stuff that you've done before and, and you talk about apologetics, um, and, uh, you've made arguments for, for why, um, conditionalism is helpful within the realm of apologetics, uh, comparatively to something more like, uh, the traditional perspective. And so that could be a very fun thing, um, to talk about in the future, if you'd be open, hopefully I didn't bore you or. No, not at all. Like I've, I've had a blast, and, and, and I'd love to do that. Um, maybe after awesome. you read my uh, my article on the topic, maybe that'll yes. be some good fodder for questions, and, and you can have me on again if you'd like. Yeah, that would be awesome, and I'll, I'll share that with Marty as well. Uh, Marty's the the my co-host who, um, like I alluded to in the beginning, couldn't be here. Uh, he was kind of bummed about that, but he's out on tour, um, tour, you know, doing a small tour with his band, and um, he's a drummer, but he's also a worship pastor, so he plays guitar as well. So he's doing a cool thing. Um, but it'd be neat for you to be able to meet him as well. And, and we can get his voice, uh, involved too. Yeah, that'd be great. Sweet. Awesome. Well, thank you, uh, Chris so much again for your time. I really appreciate it. I know, um, that our listeners are going to love this. And so I'm excited. <laughs> I'm I excited don't to love it as much as I have loved it. Oh, uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Have a great one. You too. Bye-bye.